in your copy of the Bible this morning, I invite you to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, and our focus this morning is in verse 30 through verse 33. Romans 9, verse 30 through verse 33. And I've done this probably just about every week in Romans 9. I have briefly gone backwards and traced the argument forward so that we can kind of see where we are in the flow of thought. So for many of you, if you've been here every week in Romans 9, you've probably just about got that flow of thought memorized by now. And that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. And for some of you, if you've not been able to be here every time, then this is a, just a helpful catch-up to see how, uh, how the argument in Romans 9 has unfolded in Paul's thought. But really at issue, in Romans 9 all the way through Romans 11, all three of these chapters, the issue that is on the front burner is Israel's unbelief. That you have God's covenant chosen people, the Israelites, going all the way back to the initial promise to Abraham. All of the forefathers, the patriarchs, the 12 tribes, God's entering into covenant with them on Mount Sinai after his marvelous rescue of them from bondage in Egypt. His watch care over them through their history in protecting them from enemies until the point where they got to a point of disobedience and apostasy that God allowed their enemies to come and overpower them. But yet even then, God had not abandoned them, and he restored them to the land. He returned them from captivity. And so God, at times in the past, has chastised his people, but he has never abandoned them. He's always been with them. And so the issue now for Paul is, especially with the coming of Christ and, and the implications of the coming of Christ for, for the gospel and for the message of God, for everyone now, since Christ has come, there is salvation in no other place than in the name of Jesus. That is, that is incredibly clear from the Gospels, from the words of Jesus himself, through the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's now salvation in no other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved, other than Jesus Christ. And Paul's Gospel in Romans 1 through 8 has been fundamentally about that as well, that in Christ Jesus, through faith in him, through his finished work on the cross, there is a righteousness that is imputed to us. Not on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith in Christ. And if that's the case, if that is the way we get to God, is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and no other way can we get to God, then what's going to happen to all of the Jewish people who rejected Jesus? What about the Pharisees, chief priests, the rulers of the law, the ones who, who even arranged for Jesus' crucifixion? put him on the cross? What about all the ones who yelled out, crucify him, crucify him? And, and even more than that, even more than just the ones who took an active role in his crucifixion, what about the ones who just don't believe in him? They just reject him. They don't acknowledge that he is who he says he is. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They, they're not placing their faith in him to receive eternal life. What's going to happen to all of those descendants of Abraham? 
according to Paul's gospel, they will be accursed. They will be condemned. And it's not just Paul's gospel, is it? It's the gospel of the apostles. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel of God. Jesus himself said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He told the Jewish people of his day that that if you desire to know the Father, then you must know me. There is no other way to the Father except through me. And so according to the, the gospel of the New Testament, there is no salvation outside of Jesus. So for the Jewish people then, that means that many, many of them are going to be lost. Eternally lost. And that's of grave concern to Paul. Not only on a personal level, but even on a theological level, then what does that say about God's faithfulness? What does that say about his word? What does that say about his covenant promises? So that's largely what Romans 9 has been about, is what about all of this Jewish unbelief, and and what about them being condemned for eternity? How does that fit with what God has promised to them? Has God's word failed? And Paul's answer to that is takes up most of Romans 9, that, that God's word has not failed. Well, in what way? How has God's word not failed? Well, first you have to understand that God has never intended from the very beginning to save eternally every single descendant of Abraham. That's never been his plan, not even from day one. And Paul illustrates that in the case of Isaac and Ishmael and then in the next generation with Jacob and Esau. And so in those cases, you have descendants of Abraham, Ishmael, and Esau, who were not chosen. They were not chosen to be part of the family line, and by all implications in the scriptures, because of the way that they treated the family line that God did choose, and because of the way they acted and the way they responded to God, we can even assume that not only were were Esau and Ishmael not chosen for the promised seed, but they were also not chosen unto eternal life. And so you have descendants of Abraham not chosen. That's what Paul is illustrating with Ishmael and Esau. And so he then argues, well, why were they not chosen? Was it because of something they did? Was it because of how bad they were? Was it because of their bad character? Was it because they weren't of the right parents? And Paul pulls out the rug from all of those arguments, doesn't he? It's not because of who, what their ethnicity is. It's not because of who their parents were. and not because of what their works were, either present or future. Not because of their character. Not because of anything in them at all. In other words, he pulls out from consideration for their choice all human considerations. Anything human that can go into the equation that would cause them to be chosen is taken out. Which leaves what? Leaves God, right? Leaves God. Therefore, the the total consideration, the total ground for why Isaac was chosen over Ishmael or Jacob was chosen over Esau, the total consideration is in the mind of God himself. And no other place. He says, so that the, the purpose of God according to election might stand, might remain firm. So it's God's choice. Well, then, doesn't that make God unjust? Why, why, why wouldn't he show mercy to everyone? And Paul goes back to the Old Testament scriptures in a fundamental declaration of who Yahweh, the God of the universe, is. 
And that is, it is within his right as Yahweh, as God, to have mercy on whom he desires to have mercy and compassion on whom he desires to have compassion. It's within his right. It's a part of who he is in his identity as Yahweh God. Well, then he asks the question, beginning in verse 19, well, then why does God still blame us then? If God is this sovereign, and, and really it all comes, if the ultimate ground, the ultimate consideration of choice lies in God himself and in his sovereign will, then why blame us? It really doesn't matter what we do then, right? If God is that sovereign, then it really doesn't matter what we do. Therefore, God shouldn't hold us accountable. God shouldn't blame us for what we do. And what's Paul's response to that? Who are you? Who are you? You're not the creator. God's the creator. The the thing that has been made can't talk back or rebel against the thing that made it, can it? The pot can't say back to the potter, why did you make me like this? He grounds it in the creator-creature distinction that, that God is God as creator, and he can do with what he wants to with his creation. So, and, and even above that, Paul does not accept that viewpoint of a fatalistic view of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Paul does not accept that as, as, a, as a legitimate viewpoint. And the key reason why he does not, or, or, and the, the evidence that he does not accept that viewpoint is found beginning in Romans 9, verse 30, into chapter 10. Because what Paul has been doing in Romans 9 is he has been looking at the election of Gentiles and Jews from the divine perspective. From the divine perspective, we might say from the hidden, mysterious will of God perspective. And that what God is doing in verses 24 through 29, what God is doing is he is calling out a people from all nations. He's calling out a people from the Jews. He's calling out a people from the Gentiles. He is calling out a new people from all of the families of the earth. And he is showing mercy to those who don't deserve mercy. And from those who think they deserve mercy, he is not showing mercy. And so God is calling a new people. And this is, this is all part of his divine sovereign plan. The mystery of the ages, we might say. But now, beginning in verse 30, Paul turns in his argument here and then into chapter 10... And he is going to look at the other side of the equation, which is our accountability as people to respond to the message. And beginning in verse, chapter 9, verse 30, on into chapter 10, Paul's argument is, is that Israel, many Israelites are on the outside, and they will be eternally condemned for one simple reason. They did not believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so chapter 9, he's looking at it from the divine perspective of election and the sovereignty of God. But beginning in chapter 9, verse 30 into chapter 10, he's looking at it from the human perspective. And both are true, aren't they? And so this is proof that what he means in 
in Romans 9.19 where he says, well, why does, why does God still blame us then? What he means by, in his response there is not a fatalistic viewpoint in which it doesn't matter what we do. Fatalism is a philosophical viewpoint that basically says the end has been determined and it does not matter what you do from here to there, it will still end up at that goal. Any choice that you make, any decision that you do will not alter the end result. And that's not the biblical viewpoint of the sovereignty of God, how it works. The way that the the sovereignty of God works in Scripture is in a way that I cannot fully explain. In a way that is beyond our comprehension because God's ways are higher than our ways, right? Isaiah says, God's ways are higher than our ways. In a way that I cannot fully explain, we do what we want to do. We're not robots. We do what we want to do. We make choices the way we want to make choices. If, if I want to eat ice cream, I eat ice cream. If I want to live in Texas, I live in Texas. If I want to go on a trip to Hawaii, I go on a trip to Hawaii. I, I, I do what my desires tell me to do, right? But yet somehow in a way that's mysterious and beyond our comprehension, every single decision I make, every thought that I have, every step that I make along the way fully fits in with God's sovereign plan. Such that not just the end result, but even every step along the way is a part of his divine will. And so Paul is saying that God's election works this way, and it works in in a way that only he can fully understand. And it works in a way that is that is sovereign. It works in a way that arises out of God's love and out of his own desire to show mercy and has no considerations whatsoever in the worthiness of people. That's how divine election works. But now from the perspective of human accountability, we have a responsibility to believe. We have a responsibility to believe and accept the message of Christ that is preached. And if we do not believe... We have nobody to blame but ourselves. Can't blame God. At the end of time, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, for those who have not believed, do you think it's going to be a sufficient argument to look at God and say, well, God, you're sovereign. God, you're sovereign. Didn't matter that I didn't believe. You're sovereign. It's not going to work at that point, is it? God's going to say to them, you didn't believe. You didn't believe. You rejected my son. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And so what that means then is our choices matter, don't they? They matter. Our response to the gospel matters. So what shall we say then? Romans 9 verse 30. What then shall we say? This this is kind of Paul's new line of thought after everything that he has been saying. What shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
as it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, you are glorious. You are mighty. You are the God of truth. You're the God of love and holiness. You're the God of salvation who redeems people through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see today that every single one of us must respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And every single one who responds in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ has the confidence of eternal life. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, for the good news of what you have given to us through your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. What Paul reveals in these verses, in verses 30 through 33, is that the Gentiles, at least in great numbers, the Gentiles have received the righteousness of God, even though they did not pursue it because they received it through faith. The Gentiles, in great numbers, obviously not all Gentiles, there were still many, many unbelieving Gentiles, right, in Paul's day. But the Gentiles, in great numbers, have received the righteousness of God, even though they were not pursuing it, because they received it through faith. So what Paul is saying here is that the Gentiles have received, have obtained a righteousness. I think it's important that we define what he means by that righteousness. And I believe what he means by righteousness here is exactly the way that he defined it earlier in Romans. Really beginning here in chapter 9, verse 30, and on into chapter 10, we find many, many of the similar themes that we're used to in Romans. Things like faith versus works. Righteousness imputed to us, imputed to our account through faith. These are things that he's been talking about all the way through Romans. Now he's returning to those same themes again in dealing with the unbelief of the Israelites. And so what's the righteousness that the Gentiles have received? It is a righteousness of justification. It is, it is a righteousness not of personal attainment. In other words, it's not the righteousness of people making themselves better, of making themselves more and more moral or good. It is a righteousness that is forensic in the sense of it's judicial. It is a standing. And it is what Paul has been talking about through Romans, and that is that we are accounted as righteous. We are accounted as justified, not because we have earned that status, but because Christ has earned it for us and it has been placed on our account by what means? By the means of faith. By the means of faith, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account and we stand before God as forgiven, as justified. That's a marvelous truth, isn't it? And especially when you think about it from the context of the Gentiles and the way Paul describes the Gentiles in chapter 1. 
In chapter 1, he said they had a knowledge of God, but they suppressed it. They held it down. There's evidence of God everywhere in creation. Even their consciences tell them that there is a God, but they suppressed it. They held it down, and they twisted it in their unrighteousness and their wickedness. And they turned that which God has created, and they, and they twisted it into that which is perverted. His very strong words of judgment and condemnation for the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1 but the gospel has come to them. The gospel of God has come to them. They were not pursuing God. The Gentiles were not pursuing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness in the sense of a right standing before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Certainly there were some Gentiles, especially among the philosophers, who were trying to live a moral life. And we're trying to do what was right in terms of good and evil. But they were not pursuing a right standing of justification before God, the creator of the universe. They weren't even looking for it. They weren't seeking it. They were going their own way. But then the gospel of God came to them, right? The gospel of God was preached to them. And the enlivening, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit came to them. And they believed. They believed. And what did they receive? Even though they weren't pursuing God, they weren't pursuing it, a justification before God, they weren't looking for it. But when the gospel came to them and the Holy Spirit of power came to them, they received that righteousness, didn't they? Because they believed. They accepted it in simple faith and they placed their lives on the foundation of Christ. And now they stand justified before God. But what about the people of Israel? Verse 31. The Jewish people, the Jews, at least in great numbers, certainly there were some Jews who were saved, right? There were some Jewish people who had trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Paul was one of them. Many of the apostles were Jews. So certainly there were Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but in large numbers and in, in, in a majority, many, many Jewish people, descendants of Abraham, were not trusting in Christ. And so those Jewish people have not received the righteousness of God, have not obtained the righteousness of God, even though they were pursuing it. Because they were pursuing it through works, not faith. There's a great contrast here. The Gentiles, not pursuing it, received it. Why? Because they simply believed. They trusted. The Jews, pursuing it, did not receive it. Even with all of their pursuing, even with all of their work and all of their efforts, they did not receive the righteousness of God. Again, what does righteousness mean here? It doesn't mean making ourselves better morally. It doesn't, make, it doesn't mean making ourselves better people. The righteousness that Paul is talking about here is the righteousness of justification. It is the righteousness of standing before God as forgiven, declared, not guilty. And how were the Jews seeking that? They were seeking it through the law. He says here, the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness. They were pursuing the law. 
They wanted to obey the law. They had this gift of the law that God had given them at Mount Sinai. And they were pursuing it as if the law could give them life. They were pursuing the law as if through the obedience of the law, they could attain this righteous standing of justification before God. And so receive life. And Paul says they never reached it. Even though they were pursuing it, they did not attain it. They did not reach their goal, which was the goal of justification, of right standing before God and eternal life. They did not reach it. Why? Because they were going about it the whole wrong way. They were going about it by means of works and not by means of faith. That's what he says in verse 32. Why not? Why didn't the Jewish people receive it, even though they were pursuing it? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So, wrong method. But there's another reason why the Jewish people did not attain their goal of righteousness, of a right standing before God. And that's revealed in the quotations from Isaiah that Paul gives, beginning in verse 30, at the end of verse 32 and end of verse 33. Why did the Jewish people not arrive at a right standing of forgiveness and justification before God? Why had the Jewish people not attained unto eternal life? Not only because they pursued it as a means of human achievement through the works of the law, but also because they rejected the culmination of the law, which is Christ. So, Here's the thing. They had the law for all these centuries and they were pursuing a righteousness of God, a righteous standing before God by means of the works of the law. And they never reached it because they were not doing it through the means of faith. They were doing it through the means of works. But then also at the time in history when God brought the culmination of all the law, the prophets and the Psalms, he brought the culmination of all of the Hebrew scriptures into the world, which is Jesus Christ, isn't it? Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that is written from Genesis to Malachi. He is the end goal of everything that is written in the Old Testament. He is everything that it pointed forward to. And when he came, they tripped over him and stumbled and fell into condemnation because they did not believe. So the Jewish people, by and large, have failed to receive salvation because they have failed to see Jesus as the fulfillment of their scriptures and as their Savior and Lord. So the Jews not only went about the approach to the law all the wrong way, approaching it by works instead of by faith, but they also missed the whole point of the law. The whole point of the Hebrew scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings from Genesis to Malachi, the whole point was to point them to its fulfillment in the Messiah. And they missed it. He came and they rejected him. 
as Paul puts it, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. What or who is the stumbling stone? The stumbling stone is Christ. He is the rock. And in Old Testament imagery and the way the New Testament quotes that Old Testament imagery, Christ is the rock. And your response to Christ determines your relationship to that rock. If your response to Christ is faith, then Christ is your cornerstone of your foundation. And you are built on him unto everlasting life. But if your response to Christ is unbelief, then that rock is not your cornerstone. That rock is a stumbling stone. And it causes your crushing, your condemnation. Instead of being built on it, it falls on you and crushes you. And it's all about the response to that stone. And Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He puts together two quotations from Isaiah, two different places in Isaiah, and he kind of welds them together into one quotation to make his point. He says, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now, let's just analyze that for a moment. Who is the one who sent Christ? God did, right? God sent Christ. And the reference to Zion is a reference to Jerusalem. Which had meaning in its Old Testament context, but now especially in the way that Paul is appropriating it for the New Testament, he is applying it to Christ. And where was Christ crucified? Christ was crucified in Zion. He was crucified in Jerusalem. And Christ, the crucified Messiah, became a stumbling block to many, many Jews. And instead of believing in him, they tripped over him and fell over him. And Paul, throughout the New Testament, in a couple of different places, refers to the gospel of the crucified Christ as a stumbling block, as an offense. It was an offense to the Jews. Why? Because they were not looking for that kind of a Messiah. They weren't looking for a suffering Messiah. In spite of everything that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, they were not looking for a suffering Messiah. They were looking for a triumphant, victorious Messiah. And so the failure of Jesus of Nazareth, his defeat on the cross of Calvary, his ignominious punishment to a Roman cross, to them, that was an offense. It was a scandal. Interestingly, the word scandalon is the word for a stumbling stone. It was a scandal. It was an offense. It was something they rejected. It was something they were horrified by. And they stumbled over it. They tripped over it into unbelief. God put it there. It was his means of salvation. It was his means of deliverance. But there were many, many who could not see it. Why could they not see it? Well, we could go back to Romans 9 for that. And there are, there are divine reasons for why people don't see what they should see or hear what they should hear. 
But but spiritually speaking, left to ourselves, we're all spiritually blind and deaf, aren't we? We're all spiritually blind and deaf. And there were many, many who did not see Jesus for who he was. In spite of all the miracles, in spite of all the fulfillments of prophecy, and how his life matched up with many of the Old Testament scriptures, they still could not see him for who he was. And many of them will die in unbelief. But the promise is still there in Isaiah. And the promise is still there for us. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And the idea with that word shame there is the idea of a misplaced confidence. In other words, somebody who puts their trust in something that they shouldn't have will be ashamed. Somebody who who, uh, repels off the side of a rock with a twine. Not only will they die, but they will be ashamed, right? They will be able to be put to shame because they put their trust, their confidence in something that they never should have put their confidence and trust in. But the one who puts their confidence, their trust, builds their life on Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, they will never be put to shame because their confidence in him will be found out to be well-deserved. Because he will deliver on his promises, won't he? He will deliver on his promises. And every single one who puts their faith in him, they will receive eternal life. And on the last day of judgment, they will not be put to shame. They will, na- they will not face shame and guilt and condemnation. Instead, they will receive salvation and joy and eternal life. Because they place their lives in Jesus Christ. And so that's the final point that I want to make and that Paul makes from this quotation from Isaiah. And that is whoever, Jew or Gentile, may receive salvation in Jesus Christ through faith in him. Boy, that's just simple gospel, isn't it? That's just simple gospel. And that's all that he's saying here. He's saying here, and on top of everything that he's been saying about the divine will of God in Romans 9, about how God works in the world and and the way that his election works, in the end he comes down here now and he looks at the human side and he says, it's really quite simple. The ones who go into eternal condemnation are the ones who rejected Jesus. And the ones who are saved are the ones who put their faith in him. Whether Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. What was his opening statement in the epistle to the Romans? Kind of his, his purpose statement for the whole letter. For I'm not ashamed, right, of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who what? Believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. That's what he's saying here. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, in that cornerstone. And if your life is built on that cornerstone, you will never be put to shame. Not now, not in eternity. But if you reject this cornerstone, then it becomes your rock of offense, your stone of stumbling, and it's a stone that will crush you. And on the last day, all you will be able to say is, I did not believe in Jesus. And God will say, depart from me forevermore. Faith in Christ. He is the rock. I pray that your life is built on him as your sure foundation. Let's pray together.
Lord God, we thank you for being a God of mercy and of grace. Thank you, Lord, that even though none of us deserve it, that you have provided and granted to us a righteousness, a right standing before you, forgiveness of sins. You've given it to us as a gift by grace through simple faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, for the life of our Savior. We thank you that he came. He humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. We thank you that he, as a servant, lived for others, not for himself. And that as a servant, he took upon himself the cross of shame. And he died in our place. We thank you, Lord, that in your, in your plan for our salvation, that you rose your son, Jesus Christ, from the grave. And now he has ascended where he lives and reigns forevermore. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed his name to us. You've revealed his gospel, his truth. You've revealed to us that there is no way of salvation except through him. Lord, if there is someone here today, a young person, maybe an older person, someone who is still putting their faith in themselves, they're confident that their own good works is going to earn for them eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would show them that that's a fool's errand and that the only way to eternal life is through Christ and Christ alone. Lord, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Soften our hearts to believe. And Lord, may your name be glorified. We pray this through Christ. Amen.